Israel desired a king for all the wrong reasons. Even so, God would have appointed a king on his own terms in his own time if the people had not forced the issue. As far back as Genesis chapter 49, Jacob prophesied that a scepter would rise out of the tribe of Judah, scepter or a ruler. In Deuteronomy 17, in the law of Moses, God gave specific commands for the king, ways that he should conduct himself anticipating a future king. I believe that God already had a man picked out to be king in Israel. It was David. And it was to David that God will later make some incredible promises that will ultimately be fulfilled by his heir, Jesus Christ. But let this be a lesson to us. So often, our desires and God's desires are really not that far apart. We want a good job. God wants us to have a good job. We're seeking meaningful relationships. God is delighted when we are involved in significant relationships. We try to accumulate the necessary provisions. God has promised to meet those needs for us. A lot of times the things we desire and the things God desires are really not that far apart. God's will is good. And God wants the same for us so often as we want for ourselves. The contrast, though, comes in the why we want these blessings. And the how we go about seeking them and our willingness to wait on God to bring them about in His time and in His way. And when desires go unchecked, and when they get out of control and lead us beyond the boundaries of His will, we get into trouble. But when those desires are governed by faith, God blesses and He fulfills them. It was by forcing the issue with God Israel's desire for a king led to an undesirable king. And Saul became more of a blight upon the nation than a blessing. We need to be careful when it comes to forcing issues on God. God will bless in his time, in his way, in his will. Remember, uncontrolled desires lead to undesirable ends. Now, it didn't take long for Saul to prove that he was an unfit king. His failure to obey God after his victory over the Amalekites caused God to reject Saul and his kingdom. And so in the beginning of chapter 16, God tells Samuel to fill his anointing horn with oil and visit the house of Jesse there in Bethlehem. In verse 1 he says, I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel assumes that Jesse's firstborn will be chosen. Why not? Eliab was a fine, strapling young man. But of course, that's what they said about Saul too. That he was handsome and that he was tall and that he was good looking. And Saul didn't make for a good king. And in verse 7 here, the Lord rescues Samuel from a really shallow way of thinking. And he reminds him of an important truth. God says to him, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. 
For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When God evaluates a person, he rips off the veneer, he cuts right to the core, he looks at the heart. Image, stature, wardrobe, physical attractiveness, pious posturing, never even factor into God's analysis. When God sizes up a person, he puts the tape measure, not around that person's brain. Aren't you glad? Or their biceps. Or their waistline. Aren't you glad of that? But he puts his tape measure around their heart. In one of Arthur Conan Doyle's novels, Sherlock Holmes makes an interesting statement. He says, The most attractive woman I ever knew was hanged for poisoning three little children for their insurance money. So much for beautiful appearances. The book, The Faces of Greatness, contains photographs of the faces of 90 famous people. Of those 90 faces, 70 have noticeable blemishes. 35 have moles or warts. 13 have numerous freckles or liver spots. Twenty have obvious acne or other pimples, and two have highly visible scars. Each one of those 70 people out of the 90 obviously have overcome a flawed appearance by possessing a courageous heart. You see, God doesn't care about a person's appearance, and therefore neither should we. The color of our skin, the cost of our clothes, the cut of our hair makes no difference to God. It might make a difference to your dad, but it makes no difference to God. If a guy comes into our church and he has a purple mohawk and he has a facial tattoo and he's wearing a hardware store full of body piercings hanging out of every loose thing in his body, let's not sit back with folded arms with a judgmental attitude Rather, let's reach out in love. That's what Jesus would do. Let's look beyond the outward appearance and let's look to that person's heart. Let's never forget, guys, that our job is to represent God. Not our own biases, our own preferences. Sometimes God will deliberately use people that we don't think fit the mold or that we don't think look the part just to remind us that God's qualifications and His requirements are not ours. I'll never forget the night I made a hospital call on the back of my motorcycle. I even parked my bike in the clergy parking lot. And when I went to leave, the attendant couldn't believe that a pastor could be wearing a black jacket and be riding a motorcycle. She was sizing me up by my outward appearance. That's how man judges. But God looks deeper. God looks at our heart. This is why Samuel is told to reject Jesse's sons, the seven boys that are paraded before him. Finally, he turns to Jesse and he says, Hey, are all the young men here? And Jesse replies, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. You mean God is about to choose the runt of the litter? The caboose in the family? You've got to be kidding. The kid brother? God rejects a lineup of wallies in order to choose the beef? 
<laughs> We're told in verse 12, So Jesse sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. Was he so young that he had zits? Maybe acne scars? He had bright eyes. The word can possibly mean blue eyes. Unusual for a Jew. And good looking. He was young. He was strong. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And in verse 13, Samuel did so. But who would have chosen an early early adolescent, blue-eyed Jew to be king over Israel? If there was ever there was a person who didn't fit the part, it was David. And yet history tells us that David was a mighty man of God and Israel's most prolific king. You remember, Saul looked like a king, but he had a peasant's heart. David looked like a peasant, (laughs) but he had the heart of a king. Proving once and for all that what you see is not always what you get. Church history is full of examples of men that were greatly used by God who were initially passed over by the mission boards and the pulpit committees. They lacked the training. They lacked the experience and the credentials. But God saw in them the intangibles. God saw qualities that didn't show up on the spiritual gift inventories and the psychological examinations. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Verse 13 tells us, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. But in contrast, the next verse, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. God removes the hedge of spiritual protection from Saul. It's interesting, though, how this distressing spirit is corralled. Saul's advisors look for a skillful musician who can play the praise of God. They know that praise and worship can drive out the evil spirit that is tormenting the mind and soul of Saul. One author writes, Satan is allergic to praise. So where there is massive, triumphant praise, Satan is paralyzed, bound, and banished. I agree. Guys, in the ears of Satan, our praise is like the sound of fingernails clawing down the blackboard. When he hears our praise and worship, he covers up his pointed ears and he runs out of earshot. He flees. You know, we don't usually think of worship and warfare as going together, but they really do. Praise reminds Satan of his inferiority and the folly of his insurrection, that God will prevail. When we glorify God, Satan either must stop the praise or drop his diabolical work, one or the other. This was what happened when Saul went into one of his funks. David would begin to praise the Lord. And we're told in verse 23, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take a harp and play it with his hand, and then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart. On occasion, an emotional cloud will sort of roll in over me like a sudden summer storm. And I've learned to recognize such moods as spiritual attacks. And I have found that the sure cure 
is to just stop what I'm doing and spend some time praising and worshiping the Lord. When I do, it drives that cloud right away and it rolls out as quickly as it rolled in. Guys, praise is powerful. The Valley of Elah is not too far from Bethlehem. And so Jesse sent his youngest son to the battle lines to check on his three older brothers who were there fighting and to really find out the plight of Israel. In a daily campaign of intimidation, the Philistines were sending out their most ferocious warrior, all nine feet, nine inches of him. Goliath was covered with a body armor that weighed 150 pounds. He carried a huge spear. The head alone weighed 20 more pounds. And Goliath not only had size, he had a mouth on him. Goliath knew how to talk smack. He defies the armies of Israel. It's interesting. One extra biblical source, the Targum of Jonathan, claims that in his boasting, he went on to brag about being the Philistine who killed the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and drug the ark to the temple of Dagon. He went on to brag how that he had killed thousands of Hebrews. Apparently, Goliath was the Philistine counterpart of Samson. Goliath was a giant of a man, if he really was a man. The word giant is the Hebrew word Nephilim. It was used back in Genesis 6 of the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. And you remember in the Old Testament, the phrase, the sons of God, refers to angels. It's possible that before the flood, fallen angels or demons had taken human form and were beginning to have sexual relations with the daughters of men, women on earth. Jude calls these angels the angels who did not keep their proper domain. And the flood might have been God's way of wiping out a widespread perversion within the human race. Apparently, though, isolated outbreaks of this same perversion occurred later in Palestine. The spies reported Nephilim in the land. Deuteronomy 3 notes a Canaanite king named Og, who was also a giant. Still later, in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb fought the sons of Anak, who Numbers 13 says were related to the Nephilim. If all of this is true... It means that Goliath was more an agent of Satan and an enemy of God than we might first assume. And that this encounter in the Valley of Elah is indeed a spiritual showdown. In his taunts, Goliath suggests a form of surrogate warfare. You got to remember, in ancient battles, even the winning army suffered heavy casualties. We're talking grueling hand-to-hand combat a bloody and brutal affair. And rather than entire armies entering the fray, it made sense to just pair off two champions, let them fight it out on behalf of their respective armies. But who wants to fight a giant? I mean, in verse 24, we're told that whenever Israel even saw Goliath, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. And Saul even sweetens the pot. He makes three promises to the man who defeats Goliath. Great riches, 
his own daughter in marriage and the advantages that come with being a member of the royal family. And perhaps the most attractive perk of all, a lifetime tax exemption for the champion and his extended family. You might, you might go out and fight a giant for that. No more April 15th. And yet still, with all of those perks, with that offer on the table, no one is courageous enough to step out of the crowd and fight this giant. That is, until David hears the taunts of the Philistine. And in verse 26, he says to the people around him, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy defy the armies of the living God? Who is this guy who thinks he can talk like that and get away with it? David understood that God's honor was at stake. David didn't fight for Saul's reward. He fought for the glory and the honor of God. When Saul hears that he has a willing warrior, he wants to interview him. And when he sees he's just a kid, he scoffs. Verse 33, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. David, though, recounts some of his own victories. He had protected his father's flocks from the mouth of hungry lions and bears. What's the difference between a bear and a big mouth Philistine? David reveals where his confidence lies in verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul tries to outfit David in his armor, but it doesn't fit. (laughs) A person of faith doesn't get to the point of battle groping for what will work. A person of faith doesn't trust in worldly techniques, worldly tactics. A person of faith is resting in what they know is true, what's been proven. They're resting and trusting in the hand of the Lord to be upon their life. You all know that the governor now in the state of Minnesota is the former pro wrestler, Jesse the Body Ventura. And I saw a car the other day with a Minnesota license plate on it. And it had a bumper sticker that read, My governor can beat up your governor. (laughs) I suppose he can. Well, imagine if Georgia were to go to war with Minnesota. We wouldn't want the two governors to square off out in the valley on behalf of their respective states. Roy Barnes would get killed. Poor Roy. And that's how Israel must have felt to see this little shepherd boy armed only with faith and sling and stone going out to represent them against this mighty Goliath. They must have been embarrassed. They must have thought, how foolish. This is suicide. Pity the poor boy's parents. Some of them probably closed their eyes. (laughs) David walked down that mountain to the brook that ran through the valley of Elah. And he picked up five smooth stones. Why five stones? Well, we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 21 that Goliath had four brothers. It's true. (laughs) And David wanted to be ready for the four brothers in case they decided to get in with Goliath. 
David was always worried about the family of his enemy. He, you remember, he talked about how the Lord had delivered him from the paw of the bear and from the paw of the lion. He was worried about their father. Here he's worried about Goliath's brothers, the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear. That's not in my notes. That just came to me. It was a revelation. In verse 43, we're told that Goliath laughed at David, much the way you're laughing at me. No, he laughed him to scorn. Well, you might be laughing me to scorn too. But Goliath laughed at David and he, and he cursed David by his gods. One commentary suggests that when he lifted his head to his gods, his helmet fell off, leaving his forehead exposed, giving David a, an open shot. You know, a clear view of his forehead. David looked this giant square in the eye and he tells him that God is about to feed him to the birds and the wild beasts. And David predicts the outcome of what's about to happen in verse 47. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. David reached into his pouch for the stone. He put it in his sling. He twirled it in the air and he slung it. And at that point, I believe that God himself took over the trajectory of that rock. And he ensured its landing right between the two eyeballs that David had just looked into so squarely. And I'll bet you could have heard the thud all the way back to Bethlehem. We're told that the rock sunk into his forehead. The mighty Goliath didn't know what had hit him. We're told the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face. And David reached for Goliath's sword. And it probably took him both of his hands and all of his might to pick up this huge thing. But with one swoop, he chopped off Goliath's head. And the camp of Israel was supercharged by David's victory. And they went on to rout the Philistines. And I guess you could say that David's victory definitely got Israel ahead in the battle. In the aftermath of this great Great victory. Several significant relationships form. We're told in chapter 18, verse 1, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And understand, this was a friendship that was fraught with complications. As Saul's son, Jonathan had a natural right to the throne. But David was God's choice. And you could say that David had a supernatural right to the throne. And Jonathan never resented God's appointment of David as king. In fact, in verse 3, he submits his allegiance to David, and they remain best buds for the rest of Jonathan's life. It's a credit to both men, really, that they remained friends and never became rivals. They could have easily. Another bond forms between David and the people of Israel. David develops some groupies. For when the army returns from routing the Philistines, the women are out in the streets singing the song, Saul has slain his thousands 
and David his tens of thousands. And how do you think Saul reacted to taking second billing in the song? Well, you know Saul. Not well. We're told in verse 8, Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Hmm. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And so Saul eyed David from that day forward. Guys, beware of jealousy. F.B. Meyer warns us, jealousy is one of the worst temptations that can beset us. It arises in the most unexpected ways and times. When everyone around us is possessed by a common joy, it steals in like a ghost and settles down on some heart, which it scourges with whips of fury. Resist its first entrance. Resist it. It's amazing. While I should be glorifying God, I can notice the work wasn't done through me. And I can get jealous. But if it's God's work, and if the vessel deserves no credit anyway, why should I or anyone get jealous? One day this distressing spirit comes upon Saul. David comes to play his harp and soothe him. Saul, though, has a spear nearby. And in a rage, he grabs it and he chunks it at David. Which teaches us an important lesson. Never put a javelin next to a jealous person. Nor, I might add, a telephone. (laughs) The same kind of damage can be done. Verse 11 tells us that David survived two of these near misses with Saul's javelin. It amazes me that David didn't do to Saul what he had done to Goliath. You know, he could have just pulled Saul's spear out of the wall behind him, turned around and chunked it back at Saul. David was probably stronger than Saul. But this was not an uncircumcised Philistine he was dealing with here. It was the king of Israel. It was the anointed of the Lord. And David knew that one day he would be king. And if he expects others to honor his appointment, then he needs to honor Saul's appointment. Guys, David was a man motivated by principle, not expediency or convenience or opinion or popularity. He was a man internally motivated who lived his life by truth, who lived his life by transcendent principle. And David stood on his convictions, even when circumstances gave him opportunities to act to the contrary. For his victory over Goliath, Saul owes David a daughter. And in a hurtful act, he promises him Merib only to give her to another man at the last minute. But Saul has another daughter, and Saul is shrewd. And he thinks maybe he can use Michael to put an end to his rival David. He thinks if he turns David into a shish kebab on his own spear, he'll turn the nation against him. So why not let the Philistines do the dirty work? And so he offers David his daughter Michael in marriage, but at a price. He tells him a hundred Philistine foreskins will do for the dowry. And of course, any red-blooded Philistine 
isn't going to give up his foreskin without a fight. (laughs) I've never been in such a fight. But I would imagine if you were fighting for your foreskin, it'd get pretty fierce. You'd get pretty determined. And of course, Saul is betting on the Philistines to kill David. But instead, David slays 200 Philistines. And he presents Saul with twice the dowry price. And in verse 28, Saul gives Michael to David. But in verse 29, Saul became David's enemy continually. In chapter 19, Saul tries another approach to kill David. This time, he tries to get his son and servants involved in the scheme. And Jonathan tells David of the plot. Jonathan promises that he will talk to Saul on behalf of David. And Saul promises to let him live. And so David moves back into the king's court. And things seem to be going along as normal until another outburst occurs. And again, Saul grabs the spear and chunks it at David, and he barely escapes. This time, Saul sends a hit squad to kill David. And they wait outside his house until daybreak. But in the middle of the night, Michael helps David escape. The next morning, Saul's goons bang on the door. Michael tells them that David's sick in bed. She's buying David some time. And why David being sick in bed would stop these guys from killing him, I'm not sure. Maybe the assassin's code says it's not fair to kill a man who's sick. I don't know. (laughs) But apparently it worked. And bought him a little time. And David escapes and he goes to Ramah to visit Samuel. In chapter 20, David catches up with Jonathan and he pours out his heart. He's really confused. He's really upset about his fate in Saul's court. He doesn't know what's going on. He says, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And David and Jonathan, they concoct a plan to determine once and for all if there's any reason for David to remain in Saul's service. Saul expects David for the feast of the new moon, but Jonathan tells his father that he's allowed David to go to Bethlehem. And of course, Solomon er Saul erupts and explodes at that. He was hoping to have another opportunity to kill David. And in his rage, here's what he does. He grabs the spear, and this time he slings it at his own son in his anger. You get the impression Saul's out of control? Jonathan signals David to leave, and he escapes. But before he does... David makes a covenant to treat Jonathan's descendants with kindness. And in verse uh, verse 41 of chapter 20, both men shed tears. It's an emotional farewell. And David says goodbye to his dearest friend, Jonathan. Now, there are some homosexuals that will try to justify their perversion by pointing to David and Jonathan and suggesting that theirs was a homosexual relationship. Look how emotional it was. Look how intertwined these two men's hearts were. But understand, this is ludicrous. Verse 41 does say they kissed one another, but understand, 
David and Jonathan were living in an oriental culture where kissing was customary among men. It was the equivalent of our handshake or, you know, a slap on the back. It was a sign of friendship, nothing more. That people today might mistake this depth of friendship and emotion shared between David and Jonathan to me is more an indictment against the shallowness of most male friendships. You know, men don't like to get close to each other. You know, we want to act macho. (laughs) We're not real expressive. And when a couple of guys dare get teary-eyed over each other, everybody assumes they're weird. I think that's sad. David and Jonathan had a holy, healthy relationship. Very masculine, very brotherly relationship. They enriched each other's lives and they served as a model of the depth that you and I should seek in godly friendships, both men and women. In chapter 21, David encounters Ahimelech, the high priest. And he asks for bread for he and his men. They're hungry. The only bread, though, was the sacred bread, the show bread that was set on the table in the tabernacle. And Ahimelech gives the bread to David. According to the law, he shouldn't. It was only for the priests. But there was a need that transcended the letter of the law. Jesus appealed to David's example in Matthew chapter 12 because on that day, the Pharisees were accusing him of violating the law by letting his disciples pluck grain and eat it on the Sabbath day. But in rebuttal, Jesus brings up David and he quotes the Lord in Hosea 6 verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, it was never God's intent to put ritual above human need. The law was given to help mankind, not hurt mankind. And even today, when the letter of the law contradicts the intent of the law, then it's the spirit of the law that should prevail. Ahimelech believes this, and so he gives David bread, but he also gives him a sword. It's the blade that David used to chop off Goliath's head. The priest apparently was holding it as a keepsake. I think this points out an important lesson. The only keepsakes we need to be storing are those that we can store up in heaven. What's left on earth will one day burn. We need to bring our keepsakes out of retirement and we need to use them however we can to accomplish whatever God will in the work of his kingdom. But I'm not so sure David should have strapped on Goliath's sword at the moment, at this particular moment, in light of where he's headed. Because we're told in chapter 21, verse 10, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. You remember, Goliath was from Gath. (laughs) And if anyone would recognize his sword, it would have been Achish. Why David flees to the Philistines, we're really not sure. Especially to Goliath's hometown. I would have thought that'd be the last place he would have gone. Maybe David, though, thought that the Philistines had forgotten him. Maybe they, maybe he felt that the only way he would really escape Saul would be to flee into Philistine territory. We're not sure. But when he arrives in Gath, he is recognized. And David becomes fearful. And in verse 13 we learn, so he changed his behavior before them, feigned madness in their hands, 
scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his mouth. And in order to escape the situation, David acts like a madman. He starts foaming at the mouth, clawing at the doors. And the king of Gath decides he doesn't need any more madmen. So he sends him away. It's interesting. You can read them when you get home. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 are written in the aftermath of this episode. And both of the Psalms are wonderful Psalms extolling how God delivers his people in times of trouble, just as he did David here in Gath. In chapter 22, verse 2, David attracts a crowd, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And so he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. These 400 men flocked to David at the cave of Adullam, which incidentally was a stronghold in the valley of Elah, near the very site where he had slew Goliath, or slain Goliath. Slewed him or slain him one. Killed him. Good. But what a motley crew. What a bunch of misfits flocked to David. David is commanding the distressed, the debtors, the discontented. Sounds like Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain. <laughs> you know, this is what has happened to the son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus reaches out in love and he accepts the down and outers, the outcasts and the disenfranchised of society, the distressed, the debtors, the discontented. You and I are among Jesus's 400. And we've been given a fresh start. We've been given a brand new identity. In Jesus' band of merry men, we have become one of his disciples. And aren't you excited? In the latter half of chapter 22, a man named Doeg, an Edomite, he rats on the priests at Nob for helping David. And Saul has Doeg slay 85 members of the house of the high priest, Ahimelech, only one survivor, Abathar, who escapes and joins David. The prophet Gad tells David not to stay at the stronghold of Adullam any longer, but to flee to the wilderness. David and his men will be safer if they stay on the move. They don't want to give Saul a stationary target. And of course, there's some important typology here. Understand, David is king. He has been anointed as king. And yet he's yet to take the throne. In the meantime, though, his, he and his men are objects of persecution. Saul the usurper sits on the throne and vents his rage on David's followers. Now think about it. In the very same way, Jesus Christ is king over this earth. He has been anointed by God. But there is a usurper on the throne yet. Satan currently sits on the throne. It belongs to Jesus, but Satan sits there and he is pouring out persecution on Jesus Christ and his followers. But one day, Jesus Christ will take the throne. He will rule over the earth. Satan will be judged and the followers of Jesus will reign and rule with him. And that's the day we're looking forward to. In chapter 23, David chases, Saul chases David into the wilderness of Ziph. 
just west of the Dead Sea. And there the Lord sends David some needed encouragement. Jonathan pays him a visit, a dear friend. And in verse 16, we're told that Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. Oh, the power of friendship. Isn't it neat to have true brothers, real sisters in Christ? It's been said, friends, double our joys and divide our grief. There have been so many times in my life when I've been down and discouraged, when God has been faithful to send a friend across my path in order to pick me up. With the help of the Ziphites, though, Saul encircles David. And he would have captured him if God had not worked providentially. A Philistine invasion forces Saul home. And once again, David escapes. In chapter 24, David takes refuge at En Gedi on the west bank of the Dead Sea. And we go to En Gedi when we go to Israel. It's a beautiful place. It's an oasis in the desert. There's fresh water. There's palm trees. They're bulrushes, big, you know, willowy plants, you know, that flop in the breeze. It's, it's beautiful there. There are waterfalls. There's abundant wildlife. It's gorgeous. And there are also numerous large caves in the oasis at En Gedi. And that's where David was hiding, in the recesses of one of these caves when Saul stopped to take a potty break. And who would have thunk it? Saul goes into the very cave where David is hiding. David's men, they flip out. They can't believe it. Saul is right there, just a few yards away. And he can't see them. He's come in from the light into this dark cave. He can't see them, but they can see him. They have the upper hand, the advantage. And they conclude that God has delivered Saul into David's hands. Apparently, Saul's grunts drown out their whispers in verse 4. David's men say to their captain, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand. They want David to go for the kill. Instead, David is content to slip up behind Saul and snip off a piece of his robe. David will later hold up that piece of garment to prove to Saul that he could have killed him, but he chose not to. Instead, as he explained to his men in verse 6, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Again, David is such a principled person. Understand, in our battles with wickedness, we need to remember that a good cause never justifies wicked ways and evil tactics. Hey, I'm pro-life. But when a pro-life advocate threatens the life of an abortionist, we contradict our message. Don't we see that? We stoop down to the enemy's level. We become nothing better than the people that we're opposing. Romans 12, verse 21 tells us, overcome evil with good. In response to David's kindness, Saul tells David in verse 17, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And in verse 20, Saul even admits that David will one day be king. But the realization doesn't change Saul's behavior or his temper or his hatred of David. 
In chapter 25, verse 1, Samuel dies and the whole nation mourns his death. They have lost a great prophet. David leaves for the wilderness of Paran further south. Apparently, he wanted to put as much distance between he and Saul as possible. I'm sure that after Samuel's death, David really felt alone and he felt vulnerable. As David passed through Maon, he has a conflict with a man by the name of Nabal. The name, by the way, means scoundrel. And it was really descriptive of his personality, his character. Nabal owed David a favor. But instead of paying up, he insulted David. And he denied David's men any provision. And David is furious. And David, baby, wants to fight. That is, until Nabal's wife, beautiful woman, her name is Abigail, she comes out and she intercedes. And she apologizes for her scoundrel of a husband. And she brings food for David and for his men. And Abigail provides a wonderful encouragement for David. She affirms that the Lord will protect him, that the Lord will make him king. And David is so impressed by Abigail that he vows not to lay any harm to her husband Nabal. But the Lord judges Nabal. She comes home and finds that he's been on a drinking binge and just kind of leaves him alone alone until the morning. And then the next morning he's suffering this major hangover and she goes in and she tells him the news of what was going on with David, how close he came to being slaughtered by the sword of David. And it causes him to have a heart attack. And he dies on the spot. And suddenly, Abigail is free to remarry. And guess who has an interest? (laughs) David takes Abigail to be his wife. Now, Abigail is one of those enigmas that I've never understood. Why do the beautiful girls get drawn to the scoundrels? Why is that? It puzzled me in high school and it has ever since. How does this happen? We really don't know how this happened in Abigail's situation. Maybe she signed up for the show, Do You Want to Marry a Millionaire? We're told earlier that he was rich. I mean, maybe that's why she did it. She could have told you a long time ago. Abigail knew a long time ago that it doesn't really work out marrying rich guys. Abigail was definitely, though, a woman who exemplified how to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You know, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us not to be. Tells us not for a believer not to marry an unbeliever. But what if the two of you were unbelievers before you got married? One of them gets saved. You get saved. Your your husband doesn't or your husband gets saved. You know, what what happens when, when an unequally yoked situation takes place? Perhaps tonight you're a believer in Jesus, but you're married to a Nabal, a real scoundrel. Well, maybe he's not a scoundrel. But she's still an unbeliever. And it's created some real tough sledding. You would give more, you, you want more than anything in the world to share your love for Jesus with your spouse. But you can't. 
They don't understand. And it's tough. It's tough sledding. And it's a tough life to live. There's an old country song with a line in it that says, I don't want no more of the cheese. I just want out of the trap. (laughs) And maybe that's how you feel tonight about your marriage. You don't want no more of the cheese. You just want out of the trap. But we need to learn a lesson here from Abigail. Rather than feel stuck with her scoundrel, she did two things. She stuck by her scoundrel, and she stuck up for her scoundrel. Maybe you need to do a little interceding with God on behalf of your unsaved husband or your unsaved wife. Maybe you need to show them some loyalty when they don't deserve it, just like Jesus shows us love and loyalty when we don't deserve it. Rather than feeling stuck, maybe you need to stick up and to stick with your spouse. And here's the beautiful thing. At the end of her life with Nabal, she looked back and she realized that it was Nabal who had helped form her into the woman that David admired and desired. If you're married to a Nabal, God is using that marriage to make you pleasing to the son of David, Jesus Christ. And so be thankful. Let the Lord work in your heart to perfect you in an imperfect marriage. In chapter 26, Again, the Ziphites rat on David. These Ziphites, man, where did they come from? We need to zip the Ziphites. This time Saul comes to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 troops, and he camps on the hill of Hakalah. And that night, David and Abishai, in a bold move, man, they just want to go for it, you know. you got to give it to these guys. They, they were brave. They were courageous. And they say, hey, let's just go down into the camp. Let's just snoop around. And so they go down and they work their way right up to where Saul himself has rolled out his sleeping bag. There he is stretched out on the ground. And lo and behold, his spear is stuck into the ground right at his head. And Abishai says, look, the Lord has delivered him into our hands. Hey, let me take that spear and it won't take but one thrust. And and I'll just shish kebab him. But David forbids Abishai. And he says in verse 11, The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Abishai, though, does take Saul's spear in canteen, and they escape unnoticed. And later David shouts from a distance and makes Saul aware of what's happened. And again, David tells him that he's had the opportunity to rid himself of his enemy, but he's chosen not to touch the Lord's anointed. And Saul blesses David, and he leaves. And here's one more illustration of how this man, David, functions. He is an internally motivated person. His actions are based not on convenience or opinion. His actions are based on faith and principle. He knows that the best way is God's way, and he's determined to do it even when it's not convenient or popular. Are you like a David? Are you like a Saul? Always trying to please others. 
Always trying to make a name for yourself or worry about your image. That was Saul. Or are you a man or woman after God's own heart like David? But even a formidable faith like David's can get discouraged. And that's what happens to David in chapter 27. He thinks if he settles among the Philistines that Saul will again forget him and leave him alone. And so he returns to Achish, king of Gath. Achish allows him to settle in a little town on the southern frontier named Ziklag. And from Ziklag, David begins to run these raids out on Israel's enemies. But each time when he, refer, when he returns to Achish, he tells him that he's been plundering his own people. He hasn't been, but he tells him that. You see, David is no longer in Israel, but Israel still lives in David's heart. And so he's, he's living in, in the territory of the Philistines, but he's doing battle on behalf of Israel. Chapter 28 demonstrates the depths, really, of the depravity to which Saul sunk in his last days on earth. When the Philistine army camps against Israel, Saul becomes terrified. And he tries to seek the Lord, but in verse 6 he says, it says, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. You remember, the Lord had withdrawn his spirit from Saul. And he should have accepted God's judgment. Instead, he makes matters worse. In desperation, Saul turns to the occult and he sends out his servants to find a medium. And in chapter 15, you remember back in chapter 15, verse 23, you remember it was then that Samuel warned Saul, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And at the time, Saul would have never thought that he would have ever consulted a witch. In fact, in chapter 28, verse 2, it says that earlier in his reign, Saul banished the occultists from the land of Israel. But here, look, because Saul has persisted in his rebellion, his sin has become that of witchcraft. And because he has rebelled and rebelled and hardened his heart, eventually it leads to Satan. And Saul's people go out and they find a medium, the witch at Endor. Incidentally, Endor was within Philistine boundaries. And we need to understand that Saul is so desperate here that he sneaks behind enemy lines to consult this witch. You wish he had been as determined and as brave and courageous when it came to seeking the Lord. The king disguises himself and he goes to this witch and he asks her to conduct a seance and to conjure up Samuel from the dead. And before she even launches into her litany of incantation, she sees Samuel. And this is not her doing. She realizes that God is at work. And we're told in verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. She knew something was up. Now notice... When the witch sees Samuel, she's frightened. And I believe what scared her was the reality of the phenomena. I believe that normally her seances were either a farce or a demon appeared. I believe this was the one time when an actual human appeared. Philip Keller writes of this witch's reaction. In terror, she screamed. This was not the usual weird apparition that came to her otherwise beclouded mind and deluded spirit. This was an act of the living Lord. 
It was really Samuel. And Samuel repeats the judgment that God has already pronounced. Samuel even acts a little perturbed that he was disturbed. He was in the glories and in the blessings and in the rewards of God. Why is Saul calling him up? Saul, you didn't leave me alone while I was on earth. Now you're not leaving me alone. (laughs) You know, afterwards. I believe this is the one time in the history of the world when someone was really brought up at a seance. I think today when a seance is conducted, it's either a demon that appears or it's just a hoax. But God doesn't allow it on a regular basis. He allowed it only once, and that was here. The only time it's mentioned in Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 28. In chapter 29, the Philistine troops pass before their generals. And David is not allowed to go and fight. And that's probably a wise move because I'm sure he would have fought on behalf of Israel. And so he returns to Ziklag. And when he does, he finds that the Amalekites have burned it to the ground and have taken their women captive. And this is David's lowest point to this stage in his life. In fact, things are so bad. Look at what we read in verse 6 of chapter 30. We're told, now David was greatly distressed For the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. Hey, David is not only mourning the loss of his own family, but he has a mutiny on his hands. They're plotting his assassination. Now, at earlier points, when David was down, God would send people to encourage him. Gad came, Jonathan came, Abigail offered a word of encouragement. But no one comes to David to encourage him at Ziklag. And there are times in your life when God will cut you off from the support and encouragement of friends and family in order to teach you that you can depend solely on Him. It's through the discipline of loneliness that God teaches us that He is faithful to meet our needs, that He alone can do it. That's what David learned at Ziklag. When his friends abandoned him, we're told that he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And when you're alone, that's what you can do. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Now at the Lord's direction, David and his men take off in hot pursuit of the raiders who've burned down Ziklag. 200 of David's 600 men, though, are so exhausted that they can go no further. And so they stay behind at the brook. They guard the supplies while the other 400 men find and attack the Amalekites. And David wins a great victory. But when they all come back and they find these guys that had stayed behind at the brook, the guys that had gone on and fought, think that they deserve a larger cut of the spoils than the guys who stayed behind. David, though, disagrees. He says in verse 24, But as his part is who goes down to the battle... So shall his part be that stays by the supplies, they shall share alike. I think that this is an important principle for the church of Jesus Christ. Some of us are called by God to fight on the front lines. Our ministries are public. We teach or we encourage or we pray or we interact with people in a public manner. But other members of the body have supportive roles. They run the soundboard. And they duplicate tapes. And they move tables and chairs. In essence, they guard the stuff. 
And both types of work are important. And both deserve an equal share of the spoils. Chapter 31 records the battle at Mount Gilboa. The Philistines rout the Hebrews. They kill all three of of Saul's sons, including Jonathan. And in verse 3, Saul takes an arrow. And he knows he's going to be captured. He knows that he'll be tortured. And so he tells his armor bearer to just go ahead and kill him. It's just a tradition. But according to tradition, his armor bearer was Doeg. The guy who had killed the priest back at Nob. Doeg had no conscience then. We don't know why he had a conscience at this point, but he refused to kill Saul. And so the king fell on his own sword and committed suicide. The next day, the Philistines find his body and they lop off his head. And then they hang his bloated body on a wall at Bethshan. It was an insult. It was a humiliation. But the men of Jabesh, they come at night and they take the body of Saul off the wall But if you ask me, Saul has been off the wall for a long time now. And it was really an appropriate end for Saul, in my opinion. The man who tried to maintain his image at all costs ended up being publicly disgraced. This is the end of Saul, but it's really just the beginning for David. And he becomes the focus next week when we move into 2 Samuel chapter 1.